an informed and intelligent awareness leads to understanding. And when we apply that understanding which we have acquired through awareness to the conditions of our life, we live with wisdom. Living with wisdom implies that we have an understanding of suffering, the causes of suffering, the end of suffering, and what leads to the end of suffering. Because it is wisdom that will guide us in making the personal choices, those many decisions that we make in a day, certainly in the course of a lifetime, that guide our speech, our behavior, how we think, what we expect. The Buddha codified his understanding, his wisdom, in a teaching on the truth, the Four Noble Truths. And it's interesting to me to hear and to see, of course, the the profusion of uh, spiritual practices and teachers and teachings, uh, psychological self-help gurus and workshops, and just the many, many uh, options that we have readily available to us today. It's interesting to see how they advertise themselves. And many, you know, uh, announce themselves as uh, having the key to uh, fulfillment, uh, happiness, healing, health, uh, union with God, bliss. Uh, my gosh, there's, I know I've left out a lot. The Buddha, quite counterintuitively, I think, talked about and said that his teaching was about, and what he taught was about suffering and the end of suffering. Initially, we might think, well, that's not a very good sales pitch. Who wants to know about suffering? But if we give a little intelligent reflection on the second clause of that phrase, the end of suffering, and then we just take a look at our life and we just, you know, catalog the kinds and ways of suffering we see in our life, our our personal life, our communal life, our uh, collective life as humans on the face of the earth. And you look at that level of suffering and consider the possibility of the end of suffering. Then you begin to get a glimpse of the dimension of what the Buddha was speaking to.
He said, I teach suffering, the end of suffering, the cause of suffering, and how to find the end of suffering. We might say that the Four Noble Truths is the kind of the, the essential Buddha Dharma. And as the teachings of the Buddha have traveled from India, where he lived, to throughout the central Indo subcontinent, into Tibet, China, all around Southeast Asia, and on to the West, of course, the teachings of the Buddha have met the local cultures and their religions and had an influence. And so we get many different cultural expression of the teachings of the Buddha. We get Zen out of Japan. We get Chan out of China. We get the monastic system out of Burma, Sri Lanka, Thailand. We get the whole Tibetan and the many different lineages in the Tibetan traditions. And in some ways, they don't look very much alike. And the teachings don't sound hardly anything alike. But it's interesting that when Deepama was here, and Kamala mentioned Deepama the other night, uh, this uh, Indian woman who was an extraordinary yogi in practicing in this tradition. And when she was here one time, she was listening to, or I think we had a guest, uh, I'm not sure if it was a Zen master that came and gave a talk or if it was a Tibetan Lama came and gave a talk here. And she didn't know. I mean, she was, you could say, kind of uh, an uninformed, very poor uh, Indian woman. And she didn't know who they were. But she was listening to what this other teacher was saying. And she was listening and listening and and midway through the talk, she said to uh, one of us, she said, I think they're a Buddhist. <laughs> because the bedrock understanding of all Buddhist traditions is the Four Noble Truths. What are the Four Noble Truths? The first Noble Truth is called the Truth of Dukkha. Now, when I started practice, practicing the Dharma 30-some years ago, it was translated as, life is suffering. Well, I was in my mid-twenties. I was healthy, energetic, had my whole life ahead of me. And I was pretty, you know, kind of confident, and I knew what the score was. And I went to a retreat. I was sitting up back, and, you know, the body was aching and painful, and the mind was wandering all over the place, and I didn't know if I really wanted to be there in the first place. I had better things to do. But I wasn't suffering. I couldn't open to that word. I didn't know what it meant. I didn't have any direct experience of it. Or so I thought. And it wasn't until 10 years later. I was in Burma practicing as a monk with Saito Upandite, and one of his translators talked about dukkha as the oppressive nature of experience. Well, 
by that time, I could get it. You know, some experience is a little oppressive. And with that, I began to open to really what it, what dukkha means in a much broader sense than just suffering. What I realized with the difficulty I had in kind of grokking it, what, what's dukkha mean, is that because we take our personal difficulties and sufferings and pains and insecurities and fears and doubts and whatnot, we take it personally, we miss the significance of what the Buddha is pointing to. That this truth of dukkha is universal. Everyone experiences the truth of dukkha. So what does dukkha mean? Well, the first and obvious meaning of dukkha is pain, physical pain, mental pain. It is the physical pain of feeling hungry, feeling tired, slamming your finger in the car door, uh, toothache, the, dise- the, the unpleasantness and sometimes really obvious pain of a disease or any other of the very obvious physical discomforts bordering on really unpleasant pain. It also refers to the very obvious mental suffering, mental pain, stress, fear, anxiety, depression, loneliness, frustration, disappointment, feeling discriminated against, isolated, lonely, alienated, the list is endless. Is there anyone in this room that hasn't experienced a lot of all of them? We do. We all know the pain of loneliness. We know the pain of feeling left out. We know the pain of feeling sad or angry or fearful. It's universal. It is a, it's so universal, the Buddha called it a truth. It is a universal truth of experience for all beings. This very obvious physical and mental pain. It's so obvious, he called it dukkha dukkha. Double dukkha, if you will. There's a second meaning of the word dukkha that is less obvious but maybe more important. It's a little subtler, so listen. It refers to the fact that everything changes. And because everything changes, that means everything in our life is unstable. Whatever we have gathered to secure our life, financially, emotionally, physically, in any other way, whatever we have, whatever information or people or money 
or things, we have kind of gotten together to build ourselves our nest for living on earth as a human being. It's all very vulnerable to change. And while we do the best we can, and many of us, certainly here, have done a very good job of getting ourselves educated and you know, healthy enough to be here and enough discretionary time and whatever income it's required. And, you know, we don't have to be at the top of the heap, but we're, in all of humanity, we're doing really good. And yet, all that we've gathered is vulnerable to change. And we know from recent or anytime you want to look in the newspaper, you can see just how vulnerable people's lives are. Things happen that are completely out of your, our individual control that can change the nature of your security, your feeling of security, completely in an instant. And all of us are vulnerable to that. This knowledge of just how vulnerable we are to the changing conditions of life hovers just out of sight in our mind. But we know it's there. And so we are forever moving through life, taking a look over our shoulder, just making sure that insecurity and fear of instability and unhappiness doesn't catch us. And so we're scrambling around trying to get and have and keep and one step ahead of the whatever it is that we fear comes with insecurity and vulnerability. And we know that. No matter what we do, no matter how new our car how much money we have in the bank, how much money we have in our IRA, how many you know, relationship workshops we've gone to with our partner, and whatever. It can all come to an end really quick. Any one of us could go to the doctor the day after we leave this retreat and get a diagnosis that would change our life immediately. And none of us are immune to it. This level of insecurity that cannot be addressed by acquiring things, knowledge, stuff, that level of insecurity is dukkha. Again, it's universal. Certainly, men have their dukkha. Women, I know, have theirs. Young people, they certainly have dukkha. The elderly, it may be a little more obvious. Those who live in robes, monks, nuns, those who live as remote hermits, isolated from everybody else, they have their dukkha. And those of us who live in the midst, in the thick of it, well, that's dukkha too. Everyone lives with this condition of instability, insecurity, hovering just on the horizon or just out of sight. But we know it's there. And we live our life trying to avoid it, to minimize it, to deny it, to keep it away. That's dukkha. 
You know what makes dukkha so difficult to see? Is that we personalize our own suffering. So I might think, God, if only I'd gotten my career together a little sooner, or if only I'd put a little more in the bank a little earlier, if only I had a little better car, and, and we personalize our sense of insecurity into uh, as it's my it's my it's my insecurity it's my vulnerability it's it's my fault that I didn't quite get it together but when I get it together then I'll be really confident not realizing that even when you get it together it's still vulnerable to change it's not your fault that you live with this truth of dukkha. This is the truth. This is the way it is for all beings, all the time. Even though some, and for many of us, a lot of experience is pleasant, we live with tremendous abundance, we could say that Dukkha is hidden in pleasant experience because when pleasant conditions change, they could get better, but they might not. We could say that this insecurity, this instability is unsatisfactory as a place to rest our happiness on. That's the second meaning of dukkha. Not just pain, but it's unsatisfactory. As if these two weren't enough, there's a third meaning of dukkha that we need to open to. Because the Buddha was comprehensive. If he wasn't anything, he was comprehensive. Okay, now there's a third meaning of, of the word dukkha. And there are two, two aspects of this. There's the micro view and the macro view. Let's take the macro view first. It's called Sankara Dukkha. It's a Dukkha of life. We're born, and for the first few years of our life, our parents or other caregivers doing the best they can feed us, bathe us, educate us, love us, dress us, coo to us, supply us with toys, do whatever they can to kind of make life tolerable for themselves. <laughs> if you don't have any kids, check it out. No, no. And then they enlist the support of society and get teachers to take the burden some of the time. And you know, after you know, after a decade, they start letting you know, you know what, you're going to have to do it on your own pretty soon. And after a few more years, you're on your own. And they say, now you take care of yourself. Now you've got this body and you've got this mind. Well, just to take care of this body, every day you have to eat, bathe, go to the toilet, get dressed, and keep moving. Right? And you've got to do that. And you've got to eat two, three, four, or more times a day. And, you know, to get the food to satisfy the hunger of this body, you've got to get food. To get food, you need money. To get money, you need a job. To get a job, 
You've got to go to school for 12, 16, 18, 20 years. There's some dukkha. Not only do you have this body, you have this mind. Now you've got this mind that you have to keep informed, educated, and mostly entertained. You've got to keep it distracted because if you don't keep it distracted and happy and you just don't do anything with it, it's like being on a retreat your whole life. <laughs> That's dukkha, right? And so we've got to keep moving. We've got to keep this voracious, hungry mind happy. And you've got to keep this voracious, hungry body happy too. And you've got to do this every day for one, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight, maybe even nine decades. At the end of which, what happens? <laughs> the whole investment goes into a box and gets put in a hole in the ground. Bad investment. And you don't have any choice. You have to do it. You can't get anybody to do it for you. You can't even neglect it. No, just say, what the heck with that? I'm not going to take on that responsibility. I'm just not going to bother to do it. Just don't eat for a week. Just don't bathe for a few days. You know, don't take care of your mind for a while. That's dukkha dukkha. You have to do it. That's a responsibility. That is oppressive. When you really stop and think about it, that is oppressive. Third meaning of the word dukkha. But that's only the macro view. The micro view is we have these eyes, ears, nose, tongue, body, mind. Six senses, five senses and the mind. We'll call it six senses. They are constantly being stimulated. Incessantly. There are sights to be seen, sounds to be heard, sensations to be felt in the body, and we know the mind is incessant. And it's just going 24-7 from the time you're born to the time you die. Even if you want to, it's almost impossible to shut it off. You can't get away from it. You can go to sleep, but even that's not guaranteed. You can have nightmares, you can have dreams, you can... There's all kinds of awareness going on while sleeping. You can take drugs. It's just kind of, let me out of here. Take drugs. Sometimes it just enhances the experience of stimulation. What are you going to do? You can't shut it off. You have to deal with it. You have to deal with what is coming at you through all your six senses all the time. And whether we know it or not, we respond or react to everything that's felt. That, too, is oppressive. It's exhausting to consider what it is we have to do just to carry this body and mind through one human life.
So dukkha has these meanings, the pain. It's the vulnerability and insecurity that we feel when things change. It's oppressive in just its burdensomeness. But it's the truth. This is what we're faced with. This is what the Buddha discovered. This is suffering. This is the, the, the whole package that comes with a human life. It's hard to open to the truth of dukkha. It's hard to open to our own pain, physical pain. You know, in our, our cultural conditioning is, hey, if you're experiencing pain, there's something wrong, at least something wrong, and maybe something wrong with you. Take a pill. Get rid of it. You don't have to experience that pain. Just take a pill. If you have emotional pain, you can take a pill for that. It's really hard to bring dukkha out of the closet into the respectable light of awareness. I am so grateful for my Dharma teachers 30-some years ago who were courageous enough to say, here's the truth of dukkha, take a look. Even though I couldn't understand it, I couldn't open to it, at least they started the ball rolling. Because if we do not recognize dukkha and the pervasive nature of dukkha in all of its aspects, we won't do anything about it. It is said that practice, Dharma practice, is to investigate the truth of dukkha. It is to pay close enough attention to the events of your life to discover the truth of dukkha. And so we have you just come, just sit. Don't distract yourself for a little while. Just sit still, pay attention. Is it obvious yet? Pretty obvious, isn't it? Pretty obvious. Physical dukkha, mental dukkha. You don't have to look much further than just just a couple days. And you see it. Now, when I was growing up here in New England a couple decades ago, my parents were of the generation where my mother said, Steve, if you can't say anything nice, don't say anything at all. And I grew up in a household with an alcoholic, and we were kind of poor, living in central Maine. Do you think there was any dukkha in our household? None that was spoken of. It's really hard. We live with this fact. And we live in denial of it most of the time. Practice is to investigate this truth. Even though when you come here on a retreat or any other kind of Dharma practice that you do, you pay attention and you discover the pain and the fear and the, inv- the vulnerability and the insecurity and the oppressive nature of the pain and insecurity in your life. That is actually a very compassionate thing to do. Not all compassionate actions have an immediate relief of suffering. Sometimes it is compassion itself to take a look and discover, in this case, the truth of dukkha. Because upon discovering the pervasive experience of dukkha in life, we can do something about it. And that is compassionate.
So now I have a question for you. Do you experience dukkha? Do you experience pain, insecurity, vulnerability, oppressiveness in your life? I know you do. Why? The Buddha asked this question. Why? Why do we experience this? And he articulated the answer to that question in the second noble truth when he said that dukkha is caused by craving. Now, we're not craving dukkha. That's not what he meant. But it is this mind that craves, that plants the seed of dukkha in our life. It's craving, wanting, acquiring, yearning, desiring for pleasant experience. Or the, the flip side of that is wanting to get rid of, get away from, and avoid unpleasant experience. For all that we have craved, for all that we've wanted, for all that we've accomplished, achieved, and acquired, and we've all done a lot, are we secure yet? Are we unshakably happy and content yet? Are we able to avoid all unpleasantness and pain yet? No. Craving is the cause of it, but it cannot satisfy. Cannot put aside dukkha. We want many things. We want stuff. We want knowledge. We want security. We want status. We want profit. We want a sense of gratification. We want self-esteem. We want to be respected. We want to be approved. We want healthy, growthful, harmonious relationships. What we want is a sense of ourselves that is just, well, perfect. Whatever we can acquire, whatever we can get, whatever we can experience in the pursuit of satisfying this craving, well, it can be lost. It can be stolen. It'll certainly be taxed if it's worth anything. If it's digital, it'll be outdated in six months. <laughs> if it's alive, it will grow sick, get, get old, and eventually die. Whatever we acquire to bolster our life and to feather our nest so that we feel secure, can't do it. We think it will. If I get and have and keep and acquire more, then I'll be happy. It doesn't work. And yet, we don't see that. And we keep craving and wanting and acquiring and trying to get more. Certainly we crave pleasant experiences. Did you crave a good sitting today? Did you crave a pleasant, pain-free sitting today? You know, did you get a, a 
a slice of a sitting where there was a little bit of relief. You know, one of our one of our students said, you know, there's nothing like a good sitting to ruin the rest of your day. <laughs> Why? You know, you come in, you sit down in the first 20 minutes or the last 20 minutes, wow, you have a good sitting. You know, the mind's quiet, the body's comfortable, and nobody around you is breathing heavy. Whew! You don't even think of the bell before it rings, it just rings, and it's like, wow. God, that was great. I guess that's the way it's going to be the rest of the retreat. <laughs> you know, that thought just comes on the tail of a good sitting. You know, and you go out and walk, just kind of like, wow, floating around, just hardly wait, get back to that next sitting. You know, come back in, you sit down, and it's like your body is made of steel. You know, there's an elephant on your back. There's a spear through your knee. You know, and it's like, what happened? You know, we're just expecting... Something that just isn't possible to happen. Even here, in the pursuit of understanding, we get caught by craving. You know, there's been some recent studies done on uh, what makes us happy, what makes us unhappy. And what they discovered is that what we think will make us happy doesn't make us as happy as we think it will. And what we fear or imagine will make us unhappy doesn't make us as unhappy as we fear it will. There was a study done of those people who won the lottery. Lotteries. You know, where you win everything you've imagined, go out and buy whatever you want. And what they found is that one year after winning the lottery, most lottery winners were no happier than the day before they won. They might have paid off the mortgage, have a new car, send their kids to college, but they're not really any happier. What they also found in in looking into those who'd had catastrophic accidents or illnesses is they found that after one year after the catastrophic illness or, or accident, those people were no unhappier than they were the day before it happened. Together, what these two uh, studies mean is we don't really know what makes us happy. And our idea of happiness doesn't really depend on conditions. Instead, whether we feel happy or not depends on the mind's relationship to what we have or don't have. It is pointing directly to the work we're doing here. Coming to know the mind and its relationship to what we have and don't have. It's not what you have and don't have. It's how you relate to what you have and don't have that will be provide any foundation for happiness or unhappiness. There used to be a big banner upstairs in the, uh, in the attic here. Years ago when I was on staff here, big banner, must have been eight or ten feet long, two feet high, said, the true yogi has no future. That means the bell to the end of sitting might never ring. To be a true yogi means, fine. To live with that not craving, not wanting, not yearning, looking for anything, 
to provide that happiness. It's said that the first noble truth is to be investigated to discover dukkha. The second noble truth of craving is to be abandoned, to be let go of, to just let go. Well, imagine that the Buddha had discovered the two noble truths, the truth of dukkha caused by craving, good luck, what would we do? We'd be in a hell of a fix. But lucky for us, the Buddha went on to discover the third noble truth, which is that there is an end to dukkha. Well, let's take a look at that. What does it mean to bring an end to dukkha? Now remember, dukkha is pain, it's uh, insecurity, it's the oppressiveness, it's vulnerability. Often when you hear teachings on the third noble truth, the, the, the end of, of dukkha, you hear these, uh, uh, some talk of this lofty goal somewhere way out in the future, which the true yogi has none of, about enlightenment, freedom, peace, uh, liberation, something, nibbana. But it always seems so far away and so remote. Do you know anybody who ever got there? Such people are said to have existed at the time of the Buddha. But here we are in the 21st century sitting on our butt trying to find the end of dukkha. Does what we do here have anything to do with what the Buddha was talking about? I believe it does. In this way, there are several ways that we experience the end of dukkha, even here on a nine-day retreat. Let me point them out. One way that we see the end of dukkha occurs in our practice when we're just paying attention. And maybe you've noticed, you're just trying to pay attention. And, you know, you're paying attention to whatever's coming up, or a primary object, and whatnot. And then you, you enter a, a, a train of thought, which you don't know that you got on, and you don't know where it's going. But at the end of which, you're sitting there with your shoulder, keeping your ear warm, and you're wildly trying to figure out something about the future, just, you know, trying to solve some problem. You know, and you, you, you become aware of this and you say, uh, do I have to be doing this right now? Maybe I could just let go. Like that. That's the end of dukkha, temporarily, isn't it? But if you weren't paying attention, you wouldn't have noticed that. There are people walking around with chronic holding patterns in their body of a lifetime of never seeing what they're holding on to and therefore never letting go. In fact, much of the pain that you discover in your body now in these first few days of retreat is just such holding on. Subtle, but it's holding on. It's holding on to fears, it's holding on to 
you know, ambitions, it's holding on to pain, it's holding on to all kinds of things that we didn't even notice. But by uncovering them, by by paying attention, investigating the first noble truth, discovering how painful it is to hold on, once we see that we're holding on, we can let go. When I started practice, the Dharma, I, when I went to college, I, went, I studied as an engineer for the first couple of years. And that was back in the days before we had pocket calculators. We had to do everything by a slide rule, all your mathematical stuff by slide rule, and a lot of, you know, hand mathematics, you know, on the paper. So, you know, you get really good at handling big numbers and lots of them. Well, when I started practicing the Dharma, and my mind wandered off, it wandered off into that old habit. And I would come to, you know, at one stop on the train, and I would be multiplying four and five digit numbers in my head. You know, and I'm just kind of like, you know, 4,732 times, you know, it just kind of like, and I'd say, Does, is, do I have to do this right now? <laughs> Isn't there another way? You know, but it's, it's what we've been conditioned to do is what you'll do in your unconscious time. And it's mostly hold on and do something. And so my mind was just doing what it always did. You know, mathematics. What have you discovered you're holding on to? Where does your train stop? Well, that's the habit of your mind. It's just because the mind is holding on, we haven't seen it enough and realized we don't have to be doing this. When you become aware of it, you can let go. End of suffering, temporarily. But it's a great sense of relief. There's a second way that we see the end of dukkha on retreat. You know, the other night I spoke about the defilements, those mental states that, well, obsess and torment us. You know, fear and anger and irritation and restlessness and sleepiness and, you know, wanting and, you know, it's endless. If we don't see them, we can't do anything about them. And so, of course, in the course of our paying attention, we, I'm sure you've noticed, you come up against these obsessive, very unpleasant, defiled mental states all the time. But because you see them, you can do something about them. You can begin to learn about them, how they feel, why they come, what they do to your thoughts, what kind of thoughts lead them. You can just, you can really begin to not only see them, but you can begin to understand them. Why they arise in the mind, how they arise, how long they last, how they leave the mind. And when they leave the mind, if you're paying attention, you'll recognize that. That, too, is a moment of relief. I don't mean that we just see the defilement, get it out of the mind, get back to some chosen object. Well, you can do that. That's a moment of relief too, but the source of that suffering is still in the mind. It'll come again and again and again and again until you understand it, how it arises, why it arises, and how, and this is the most important piece, how to let go of this obsessive mental activity. 
That's what we're learning here. How to let go of obsessive mental activity, of worry, anxiety, fear, desire, whatever else you've discovered. But how many times do we have to see over and over and over again how painful it is to judge, to be cynical, to fear, to crave, to want. It's not your fault that you experience pain when you pay attention. This is the nature of our conditioning. But, as I mentioned, it is compassion towards yourself to discover the pain in the body, the pain in the mind. And by paying attention, we can let go. We can abandon that craving, second noble truth, and realize the relief with the end of that dukkha, temporarily, momentarily sometimes. Nevertheless, it is a real moment of, well, it's a dukkha-free zone. There's a third way that we experience the uh, end of dukkha on retreats or through Dharma practice, and that is through developing not only awareness, but the non-reactive mind. You know, most of our obsessing is strong reactivity. This afternoon, in the last couple of days, Kamala's been teaching you the equanimity practice. Now, what is equanimity? Equanimity is a balanced mind. The mind that does not get caught in reactivity. If the mind doesn't get caught in reactivity, it's in the middle. It's balanced. It's the reactivity that's painful. Whether it's attachment or aversion or passivity or disconnection, that's what's painful. It's staying in touch with the moment and not reacting. Finding that place in the arresting the mind before it falls into reactivity. Just that is a great relief from a lot of dukkha. But it takes a very alert and understanding mind to not get caught in reactivity. In time, you'll see how valuable equanimity is in your practice. There's one more, an additional experience of the end of dukkha in practice, and that is when the mind is balanced. When equanimity is really strong and has quite uh, momentum in the mind, where you're seeing things as they truly are, that they arise due to conditions, they're known as they are, and when those conditions cease, they pass away. When we see this with some continuity, clarity and continuity, there arises in the mind profound understanding. And this profound understanding is of three kinds. And the first kind of understanding is it's not just an observation that things change. 
but it's a profound understanding deep in the mind that everything is impermanent. Everything is impermanent. And it's, it's an understanding that arises in every moment of experience. So that as you observe sights, sounds, sensations, thoughts, feelings, moods, whatever it is that's arising, simultaneous with that arising is the understanding, this is impermanent. Imagine that you're in this very balanced, open, and aware space. Everything that arises in your mind, you see clearly and you know. This is impermanent. You don't have to let go of craving. You don't have to let go of clinging to that. Because the mind that knows everything is impermanent doesn't reach, doesn't grasp, and doesn't hold anything. The mind that's not clinging doesn't have to let go. If you abandon craving and clinging and grasping, you find the end of suffering, the end of dukkha. The mind that never reaches, never clings, never grasps, never holds on, because it knows this that is being grasped or craved or held is impermanent. Before you can grab it, it's gone. When you know that, the mind lets go of even looking for the next thing to hold on to. And when the mind lets go of all experience, it can be with every experience, openly, fully, without fear, without clinging, without grasping, without expectation, without disappointment. Whatever comes, fine. Imagine your life where whatever came in every moment, fine. No disappointment, no expectation. The understanding of impermanence is invaluable in this way. That's the first understanding. There's a second understanding. You know all that I mentioned about dukkha? The pain, the insecurity, the vulnerability, the oppressiveness, the just... as a characteristic of much of life. The understanding of dukkha also dawns in the mind that is non-reactive and balanced. And so here we are with this non-reactive mind seeing what arises. Thoughts, feelings, beliefs, sensations, moods, emotions, everything. People, events, the future, the past, it all arises. And with the observation and awareness of it comes the understanding, this is dukkha. It is either painful, some is painful, or it is incapable of providing stability and security, some, or it's oppressive, the rest. When you understand that about all experience, what are you going to crave? What are you going to cling to? What are you going to grasp? 
Because you see, you understand this that I could grasp, this that I could hold on to, is incapable of providing the security that I seek. The mind doesn't crave, doesn't reach for, doesn't grasp anything. And yet, whatever life presents is known. It's received, it's known, it's felt, it's accepted, and it's let go of. This kind of life, or the mind that is open to all of life, not rejecting anything, and not holding on to anything, is totally free. That's a powerful understanding. The understanding of dukkha when it arises in each moment. Unbelievable power in our life. That's the second understanding. The third understanding, third insightful understanding that arises when the mind is perfectly balanced is an understanding called anatta. Anatta is sometimes translated as selflessness, egolessness, uh, all those scary things that make it seem like you're going to somehow just disappear. Well, you don't. The way that the knowledge of the anatta characteristic arises in the mind is that we see that everything that arises is very ephemeral. It's just a... You know that excruciating pain you had in the body earlier today? Where is it? Or that mental state that was tormenting you earlier today? What happened to it? Or that thought of the future that you just had to confirm? Where is it? All of those experiences are just so much... There's nothing much to them. They arise and they appear due to conditions. Those conditions themselves are unstable, don't last very long. And so whatever we experience is just this unstable appearance due to conditions. It's like a rainbow. I know a rainbow appears in the sky due to conditions. You know, there's some moisture in the sky and the sun is shining and you're viewing it from a certain angle and you see this fantastic appearance of a rainbow. There is no such thing. There's nothing. There's n- there is no rainbow. It is appearance due to a conjunction of conditions. But if we don't know that, we'll think that there's a rainbow and probably a pot of gold at the end of it. All that appears in each moment of our life is a rainbow. An appearance due to a conjunction of conditions, but in fact, that appearance has no inherent substance. This is a powerful understanding. And when it arises in each moment with all that you see, all that you're aware of, and you understand, this is just an appearance in the mind due to conditions. It's just an appearance in the mind due to conditions. What, again, 
are you going to reach for, to hold, to grasp, to cling to as a source, as your security blanket? Nothing, because you know it's just an appearance due to conditions which are, even as we speak, changing. The mind that doesn't reach and cling is free. It just settles back in the present moment and watches appearances come and go. Enjoy the show. You still live the life you live without dukkha. It's profound. You still you still do, you know, you still do the things you do. You just stop suffering. Because of the understanding that comes from this clear seeing, this is the way it is. Now, the Buddha did, in speaking about the third noble truth, he did point to something even greater than all of this. When the mind is not clinging, grasping, or reaching for anything, when it is free of attachment, it can access the unconditioned. And I'm using that word to mean Nibbana. The mind can fall into Nibbana. Nibbana is the unconditioned. It isn't caused by anything. But it is a reality to be experienced that is totally liberating. It is a reality that can be experienced. Just like the taste of mango can be experienced, the taste of Nibbana can be experienced. The words that are used to point to the taste of the unconditioned are peace, the sublime, freedom. Those words don't do justice to the knowledge of Nibbana. But it is reality. There is no one that can prevent you from tasting the peace of Nibbana. And the fourth noble truth of the Buddhist teaching is the path to be practiced to taste that fruit. The fourth noble truth is the noble eightfold path, which can be divided and is often divided into three trainings or three practices. The first is a training in morality to uh, purify your speech and your behavior as we do with the precepts, enabling you to enjoy the happiness of living in harmony. The second is a training in samadhi or purifying the mind of the defilements which gives us a temporary taste of the happiness of tranquility or seclusion or calmness, if you will. And the third is a training in wisdom. It's the purification of our understanding. It's not just tranquility. It's not just calmness. But it's the purification of our understanding that opens the door to peace, the unconditioned. It is through understanding that we access the deepest truth 
of liberation. All that we're doing here is fulfilling the conditions of these three practices. Living in harmony according to the precepts, calming our mind by recognizing and temporarily putting aside the defilements, and beginning to understand the nature of how things arise and pass away. We're doing everything we can, moment by moment, to fulfill fulfill the three trainings of the Noble Eightfold Path. If we perfect the causes by developing these three practices, we will experience the result, the end of dukkha. No one can stop you. It is not impossible. It is a reality that's accessible to you. If you aspire and make the effort to fulfill the conditions, you will taste it for yourself. Let's sit for a moment. Let the words quiet down. The third Zen patriarch put it this way. The great way is not difficult for those who are not attached to their preferences. If you wish to see the truth, then hold no opinion for or against anything. To set up what you like against what you dislike is the disease of the mind when the deep meaning of things is not understood, the mind's essential peace is disturbed to no avail. Well, thank you for listening to the Dhamma. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.